This is Song. And this is Sarah. This is Epping Ethical, where we try to make sense of all the choices facing consumers every day. Welcome back to Effing Ethical and our next episode, um, continuing in in healthcare. And today I have uh, my very good friend from Peace Corps, Eli Terrace here, who has um, some really interesting thoughts and personal experiences to share about um, accessing healthcare and really what it means living in in different states. Um, Eli currently lives in Connecticut, so we'll be talking about um, Connecticut. And And I have to say, even though I lived in Connecticut for two years, I actually know very little about Connecticut healthcare um, because I was associated with the university the whole time. So that was really all that I was paying attention to. So yeah, welcome, um, Eli, and would love to hear a little bit more um, about you. And yeah, let's get started. Great. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Eli, Eli Terrace. I served in the Peace Corps with Sarah in Senegal for a couple of years, I think 2012 to 2014. Um, and since then, I have been mostly within the environmental sector, but uh, more recently, I've been getting involved with healthcare advocacy. And that really launched about two years ago when I was diagnosed with diabetes, type 1 diabetes. And so uh, that experience was very, and still has been very transformative and, and traumatic in a lot of different ways, but it's also been um, eye-opening and exciting and interesting. And, you know, with, with every bad, I think there are some good experiences that can come out of that. And one of them has been my involvement with a healthcare advocacy group in Connecticut called Insulin for All. And it's really launched me into a better understanding of uh, the role of advocates in healthcare, as well as um, a better understanding of how healthcare works, both through my experiences um, and ongoing experiences accessing healthcare and navigating the very complex healthcare system, and then also trying to um, work as an advocate to, um, to make it better and to make the availabilities and protections for patients um, uh, stronger and more accessible. Um, I love that. I feel like that's your experience is such a perfect example of you know, the personal is political, the political is personal, and kind of how your personal experience um, has connected you into such a better understanding of this particular set of policies. Um, I guess like my first question, because I'm really interested about your your personal journey, is kind of starting, um, I guess, sort of from the beginning. But when you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, did you have, um, like, where was your where was your health insurance coming from? Did you have it provided by your employer? Were you going through the exchange? And did it sort of change your understanding of your own insurance at the time? Um, yeah, what was that like? Yeah, great question. So... I was one of those people growing up, um, up until my diagnosis, that was basically always healthy and and very seldom got sick. Um, and so I, you know, even in the Peace Corps, I was very rare for me to get sick. And I was always and still am, you know, very, very um, felt very fortunate about my good health. And uh, but as a result, through my 20s um, as, a, as a grad student and, and, and prior, I was very absent from the healthcare system. I 
very infrequently saw a primary care physician. I never, I was fortunate enough to never really need to use the pharmacy and never need to rely on medical devices. So I think just giving the big picture context of being completely unfamiliar with how the healthcare system worked was a little bit um, of, a, of a shock uh, into the transition of needing to rely on the healthcare system very closely. Um, so that's kind of the big picture context. I had just graduated from graduate school at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Sciences, which has now changed its name. And so my healthcare coverage had ended as a graduate student in June, and I was transitioning into a full-time role at health at Yale, um, but I was not um, on the payroll yet, and I was not I was still a contract worker, so I was not a full-time employee at that point, and I was not insured at that point. So it was like this window of time where I had purchased one of those really crappy healthcare plans that mostly exist in my mind I mostly got it in case I got hit by a car and there was going to be you know an exorbitant uh, cost of, of going to the of going to the emergency room and doctors and so I had this really crappy healthcare plan and I got diagnosed with diabetes and it was it was a, a kind of a prolonged process um, I started to notice that my body was not doing well. You know, the, the typical symptoms that, that come on from, from diabetes, excessive thirst, excessive urination, rapid weight loss. Um, I did a lot of Googling. I had essentially self-diagnosed myself with diabetes. And I just showed up at an urgent care center and basically said, I think I have diabetes. Um, what can I do? Can you do blood work? Anyway, to make a long story short, um, we found out I did have diabetes, um, but by the time that was kind of a long process between getting the blood work, then finding me a primary care physician. And by the time that was all set and done, I was then covered by um, Yale Health through my, for my um, uh, position. And so I ended up, most of my experience has been with this pretty good coverage from Yale University with kind of that limited window um, in that within that transition period, um, that that's so interesting. Of course, I feel like things always happen that way, right? Like when you, I wouldn't even say least expect it, but like truly are least prepared for it. And um, it's we we kind of talked before we started recording very briefly about the difference between federal and state policies and how we know federal what federal policies are and that they affect us, and we don't always think about state. But your example is a really clear impact of the Affordable Care Act, which is you weren't denied insurance, even though you had a pre-existing condition, which was diagnosed in that in-between time. Um, I don't know that Yale Yale's health insurance and health, sort of whole health care system is, is pretty good. I don't know that they would have denied you or made it more expensive. But prior to the Affordable Care Act, they could have, right? They could have said, you've suddenly become a really expensive person to insure we're just not going to give you insurance. Yes. And I think what's actually interesting is that when I had the really crappy health insurance for that limited period of time, since I went on it, even though that covered basically nothing really, but when I went on it, I didn't have any pre-existing conditions and they actually, because you can be denied that coverage if you have the prior to the Affordable Care Act, you could be denied if you have um, a pre-existing condition, they actually ended up covering a lot of the initial medical expenses just because I think the I think 
in terms of the policy that they have, in terms of the patient that they have, it's very rare that somebody, or maybe it's not as rare, I don't know, but they ended up covering a lot of stuff um, within that, that short period of time. Uh, and then through Yale Health, um, I've, the coverage is actually pretty good there. Um, I, I think my suspicion is that part of that become, is, comes, I mean, a lot of the, so Connecticut is the insurance capital of the United States. And um, a lot of the health insurance companies are fairly corporate in a sense. And they have, I think they're positioned a little bit more from a profit driven model than um, a university that has health insurance. And, and Yale also um, has among, you know, the Yale, uh, Yale New Haven Medicine has among some of the most um, uh, world-class doctors and researchers, um, including the Yale Diabetes Center, which is one of the, the most impressive um, diabetes research stations around the world. And so they, the, when, you are, uh, when you're covered, when you have access to Yale Health, both as a student or a staff member, um, the coverage is actually pretty good. And I think part of it is because they aren't positioning themselves from that profit-driven model. And then part of it is like, if we have all this great world premiere stuff and we are not even giving access to the people who are covered through us. It's like, who, who's going to get this, who's going to have access to this. Um, that's just my own, my own personal belief, but the coverage from Yale health is actually pretty good. Um, but that said, the cost of being a diabetic is still really expensive. Um, and yes, you can have, you know, 90% of, expensive technologies covered and medical devices covered and that's wonderful um but but still uh you know I, even myself personally you know outside of the premiums which are very reasonable for Yale health you know I still end up spending um you know thousands of dollars a year for my for my diabetes not not many thousands um I think you know probably between 1 and 2000 um but uh, it's still a lot of money. And that's, you know, that's, it, it's still a, a big expense for a lot of people. But if I had a different health insurance company, um, would be spending many more, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but um, they've done some some research on how much um, the average type one diabetic pays um, out of pocket in a year, uh, even those who are covered by their insurance companies. And it's, it's, thousands, um, maybe like five to 10, somewhere within that range. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a huge amount of money. And I think one of the, one of the big issues that we're seeing right now, which is what really has motivated me to become more involved with healthcare advocacy is that it's starting to, to have really serious consequences on the health of, um, patients. I think mm. what's kind of interesting for me is that I think most people, when they, you know, of course, when I was diagnosed, and I have a lot of people in my life who are who are wonderful and caring and, and have great concerns. And most people, when they are trying to better understand my experience as a diabetic, they get very fixated on kind of the bodily um, aspects and sort of, you know, pricking your fingers, injections of insulin, and those are all real and those are all challenging. But um, for myself and many other people, the greater challenges are actually navigating the healthcare system, getting access to what you need at a reasonable price and trying to swim through, um, swim against these really complicated currents. And you have to be extremely proactive and you have to be your own self-advocate to get through 
um, to the point that we have come, we're, we're at the point right now where there's some, there's some unfortunate research that shows some of the consequences. And one of them actually comes from um, Yale New Haven. So it's, it's a, a, an interesting publication that gets cited a lot when we're talking about the healthcare crisis for um, patients with diabetes, which is that um, one in four type one diabetics. So just to give a little bit of context, there's a lot of different kinds of diabetes um, there is type two, there's type one, there's um, gestational diabetes, there's other kinds as well. The most common ones are type one and type two. Um, and they come from uh, their genetic influences as well as lifestyle influences. Um, type two tends to be more lifestyle, type one tends to be more genetic. Regardless, um, there are medications that, that people need and rely on, in particular, um, type one, which is what I am, and I'm insulin dependent. So I need to have insulin, and I need to have insulin in my body at all times, every day. Otherwise, there's a risk that I could fall into a coma, and people do pass away when they don't have access to insulin. So it is really critical life or death. Um, we're at the 100 years of uh, the creation of insulin coming up just now. So prior to that, um, the, the experiences for patients with um, type 1 diabetes were really dire and um, most would um, pass away um, because there, was, there wasn't the production of insulin, which is a hormone. Anyway, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that um, this is a really critical medication and so many patients have been priced out for various reasons. Um, maybe it's because they have high deductible plans or maybe it's because their insurance doesn't offset a huge amount of the cost, um, or maybe they are not getting as much as they need from their doctors. There's a lot of different reasons. Um, but right now, um, the research I was, I was referencing from Yale New Haven Hospital um, shows that unfortunately, one in four insulin-dependent diabetics are rationing their insulin. And so what that means is they are not, they don't have access to the amount of insulin that their body, that they are using in a month, and so they are foregoing some of their dosage. So what that could mean is they know that they should be taking, let's say, hypothetically, four units for a meal, and they don't have that much, and so they're trying to, to, to make last what they have longer, and so they are not taking as much, um, and the result of that is they are having higher blood sugar levels, um, and that can have really serious long-term um, health consequences, such as blindness, such as kidney disease, such as um, limb amputation. Um, and then at its worst, not that, you know, those are obviously horrible, but at its worst, you do have people who um, fall into a diabetic coma and pass away. And it's one of those really tragic things where we are in this very wealthy country and we tend to think of ourselves as, um, you know, there is a lot of wealth in the United States. Patients are paying a lot for their, um, for their health conditions, but we do have people who are passing away because they can't afford or get access to their insulin. And so when you have, you know, 25% of the, the population that needs a medication to live that isn't getting enough of it, it really is a crisis. And um, that's, that has been what has motivated me to get involved with um, Connecticut Insulin for All which is a really interesting um, advocacy group. And so, like I said, I was very new to, to advocacy, very new to healthcare, and the model for insulin for all is really interesting. And this is gonna connect to the points you were making about federal versus state. 
So to pass federal legislation, um, it's really, really difficult. As we know, you know, our, our Congress can become gridlocked and the bills can get watered down. And it, the success for, for trying to support a population that doesn't really have a whole lot of time to wait hasn't really been effective in terms of pushing for federal change. And so the Insulin for All movement has decided to work um, from a different angle. And so the, the viewpoint has been to uh, go through states. So every state, um, not every state has, has created their own Insulin for All chapter, but um, close to 40 at this point. So the majority of states have opened their own healthcare, uh, their own Insulin for All advocacy group chapter. And they are, so we are a volunteer advocacy group. It's patient led and different states come from different contexts, right? And so, as I said, where Connecticut is the healthcare insurance capital of the United States, the kinds of policies that we have been promoting and actually been fortunate enough to get passed in Connecticut are going to be really different than a state that is not like the insurance capital of the United States. Um, it could be one of the states that has the insulin manufacturing um, or a state that has a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot more capital. I don't know. There's a lot of different contexts. And so the, the movement has really been trying to allow different states to figure out the best legislative approach to support the diabetes community and, and, and work from there. And so, and there's also a lot of collaboration between the states. And there's also a lot of shared policies. I don't want to pretend that the policies are black and white entirely different because there are a lot of context contextually um, uh, similar situations that have allowed for this symbiosis between different states to um, to, to interact and and to collaborate and to um, and to push one another. And I think what's also exciting about it is that it is, yes, it's a, it's a state by state movement, but it also is a national movement. And that I get really excited when I hear about legislative wins among the Kentucky insulin for all state chapter or the Missouri one or the Vermont one, because it's, it's this ongoing dialogue. And the more that states are, are pushing and passing, um, new bills and policies, the more that the movement gets bigger and stronger, the more momentum gets piled up. And the more that legislators are interested, one of the things we've worked, we've been working with legislators, and one of the things that they always want to know is, have other states done this? Because the last thing legislators want to do is create a bill, working with patient advocates, the bill looks really great on paper, it's signed into law, and then they are sued by the pharmaceutical industry or something like that. And the bill gets, the law gets held up in the court system or something like that. And, and so they're, they're always trying to understand how other states are doing it and what other challenges or successes those states have had, because that builds a legitimacy for the success. And then also, it's not just about seeing what worked in other places, but you know, we always, as, as, as you and I know from, from the development sector, there's unintended consequences. And of course, the same exact thing can be said within policies. And so we have seen some insulin for all bills passed in other states. Um, Colorado was the first one that put a price cap um, on the cost of insulin per month. Um, and so 
we have been able to see some of the unintended consequences from the effects from those bills, and then been able to pivot and change and adapt them um, elsewhere to try and um, uh, create a little bit of a shortcut or, or speed up the process of really having the greatest effect um, at, a, at, a, at a fast period of time. It's so interesting to think about, like, like I mean, the, the network effect of having this going on in so many states kind of at the same time, but also along different timelines, like you mentioned, um, with Colorado kind of going first and other states being able to learn from that. Um, do, I guess my question is, because you kind of mentioned it'll be different for a state where there's like manufacturing versus a state where all the insurance providers um, mm-hmm. are. Do those po- do those state policies then actually affect the availability or price or coverage nationwide? Yeah, so that's a really great question. And so to give a little bit of context in terms of understanding why the the cost of insulin is so expensive. That's really the so the cost of diabetes supplies, diabetes technologies are very expensive across the board. But insulin is the one that really is the most critical in terms of life or death. Um, and I want to just give a little bit of context as to why the price is so high, and that will um, segue into your question a little bit more. So basically, um, insulin was discovered as I said about a hundred years ago. And it was created at a Canadian university in Toronto. And the founder is named, um, his last name is Banting. And um, he was a very interesting character. Um, He was an army veteran. He seemed to have some um, alcohol issues, mental health issues. Anyway, he created insulin and he wanted insulin to be available for for all patients. He wanted it to be, I think the patent was for $1. For that insulin, it was the the, the he was motivated um, by good intentions, and uh, the insulin production has changed a little bit since then. And right now, um, we are at this point where there are three global insulin manufacturers that make insulin for ninety percent of the world. And so, within that, with those three different um, insulin manufacturers, one of them is American, and the two other ones are not. But they have um, uh, they have colluded um, with price, and they have fixed prices, and it's it's very clear. It's not just sort of this like fringe conspiracy theory. Like there was a within the last um, year, within the last couple of months, um, there was actually a bipartisan um, uh, uh, Senate uh, research um, uh, sort of. Uh, evaluation to, to understand what's going on. And it was had um, a Republican legislator, a Democratic legislator, senator. And it's been very clear that essentially the price has gone up um, dramatically. And so they the, the, the price for, so I use about three or four vials of insulin um, a month. And the, the, the cost to produce one vial of insulin um, is about $5.00. But they sell each of those vials list price for three hundred dollars. So it's very common for if I didn't have any insurance right now and I needed to buy my insulin, it would cost me over a thousand dollars for one month of supply, even though the cost to produce that is much less. And so I, I totally understand. You know, research and development is really expensive. Um, the, the 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 
production of insulin has changed a lot over time. What was created 100 years ago is really different than the insulin that's used today. I understand that. I know that these things are expensive, um, but what they are doing um, is illegal, um, but they're so big and powerful. The pharmaceutical industry has uh, has a lot of influence. They um, they have they put a lot of money um, into lobbyists who are actually pushing it back against the bills that um, advocacy groups like myself, Insulin for All, are a part of. Um, and you know, we we've talked to legislators who we work with very candidly about how they get reached out to by lobbyists all the time. So the so coming back to your question, so when you have but there's a, it's so the, the 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 root cause of it we have identified as the manufacturers that set this really high list price, and so then the the health insurance company has to buy the list price. Um, well, the list price can be negotiated. It's really complicated and really convoluted, which is partially why it's so hard to to figure out um, and so hard to make change. But the insulin, the the sorry, the the healthcare insurance companies buy insulin from the manufacturers. Sometimes they can negotiate prices a little bit lower than the list price, but there's still a lot of money. And they take they are using the money from um, premiums and they are uh, uh, they are then they are subsidizing that cost to the patient. So the patient won't pay the amount that the insurance company purchased. And so back to your question, and this is what's really interesting to me as an advocate and also really challenging is that we are working in Connecticut and we don't have the ability to change how much an insulin manufacturer can sell their insulin for. That's beyond our scope. And so we are working from within the scope of our state. And there's something really beautiful about that, but then also something really challenging about that. And so last year we worked with the Connecticut General Assembly and we passed um, the most comprehensive insulin and diabetes supplies bill in the United States, which was really exciting. But um, before, you know, we entirely, you know, uh, start cheering, um, the bill's great. Um, but the bill has a lot of shortcomings. And part of it has to do from the positioning that we have as a state and, and pushing for state policy changes versus federal changes. So the bill that we had, I won't get too into the weeds, um, but it, it, it essentially covered um, uh, three different parts. One of them actually got cut at the end. The first part was to set a price cap for the amount that Patients who are on state-regulated health insurance can will pay for their monthly um, uh, prescription of insulin. So um, that was set at twenty-five dollars. And so even though I'm at Yale Health, that uh, that is still a state-regulated health insurance plan. So ones that aren't state-regulated are like Medi- Medicare, which is um, federally regulated, um, veterans insurance, um, and then you don't have people who are uninsured, which is a lot of people. So that was the first one, um, the first part of the bill. The second part was to cap um, diabetes supplies at $100 a month. Um, And then the third part was to provide emergency access to insulin through um, the pharmacy. So right now, um, myself and all other patients with diabetes need to get um, prescriptions for insulin, and those prescriptions can run out. Um, and if your prescription has run out and you don't have any insulin, as in, as I said, you have that short window of time where you really need to get insulin in your body. Otherwise you can pass away. So if it's during a holiday or, or your doctor's, um, inaccessible, 
patients have been in that period where they can't get insulin because their doctor needs to prescribe it, but they, you know, and the pharmacy can see that they have it on their file, but they can't, they can't renew it. They can't give the patient insulin um, without that prescription. And so um, patients have died in that period of time. So this would allow an emergency access through a pharmacist who sees that you have that on your file and you can get a 30 day supply. Um, but the challenge with this is that, you know, this, this, and this is why we had a lot of bipartisan support in the Connecticut General Assembly, really impressive. And, and we had people all across the aisle um, support the bill. But the ones that didn't um, were, um, were legislators that were concerned that this is not getting to the root cause of the bill. If you are, if, if you are forcing menu, uh, insulin, uh, sorry, if you are forcing the insurance companies to limit how much they can charge patients, they may find other ways to recoup some of that money if you're not actually addressing the list price. So maybe premiums could go up or there's different ways that the health uh, insurance companies can make that change. And, and our kind of viewpoint was, yes, this isn't the root cause. You know, there's, there's patent law that needs to be reformed. There is uh, there, there are ways that we should be directing the attention to the um, the manufacturers, but we don't have the ability to do that. And it's kind of urgent. And we have, you know, when you have 25% of patients who are risking their health and, and risking their lives to, to not be able to get what they need. Um, you know, we made the decision that the, the solution, the, 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 the solution to our issue was we didn't have the power to make it to get to the root cause. And so we decided that this seemed like the best way forward for right now as, as, as to try and protect our community. Um, and, and that's kind of how we, how we have, um, positioned ourselves. In, interesting. So something you just said, um, really connects to a theme that Song and I talk about a lot, both on the podcast and, and, um, on our own. And that is, um, the, the sustainability of being an advocate. Um, and, and a core piece of that mm-hmm. is understanding how much you can change. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe when you need to compromise, but you're, you know, always pushing for this, this other change. Um, and, and we had just kind of observed over this last year that, you know, people sort of like yourself, you're really embedded into this one specific issue. So you can really understand, like you said, the people who are left out by this bill, right? Like there's people who aren't insured that still can't Mm -hmm. get um, access or reasonable or reasonably cost access, right? Like there, there's still people who aren't, um, who aren't insured or or won't be able to have access, but this, you know, still could be considered a success. Like it is better for, um, people with needing insulin in the state of Connecticut. Um, is that something, you know, like you said, this is kind of a, a newer thing for you in the last two years, but how, how do you think about that? How do you think about like, you know, gaining some success, losing ground in other places, kind of continuing, you know, knowing that there's this goal out there, which is insulin is something that is relatively cheap to produce so cheap, in fact, that, 
you know, if it really, you know, at, at the $5 cost, there would be few people, even uninsured in the U.S., that if they could actually access it for $5, wouldn't be able to pay that, right? Um, so that the goal, of course, would be that anybody who needs insulin would have access to it. Um, yep. How do you, how do you sort of personally navigate where things are now and sort of these incremental changes and then that end goal? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think um, taking a little bit of a step back uh, to the first part of your question about burnout and evaluating success. So in my mind, I think I wouldn't actually necessarily say that the the our biggest success was the bill that we passed. I think when I have tried to think about advocacy work and burnout, I think the way to, for my for my experience, my perspective, I think the way to not get burned out is to find and find your role within that space that is mutually serving to you. So, for example, I I'm one of the chapter leaders of Connecticut Insulin for All. And I am not a huge policy wonk. I'm interested in policy. I've been learning more about policy. I'm, it's a subject, uh, I have a lot of interest and that's one of them. But to me, my motivation, yes, I want to support the diabetes community, but my motivation has been more about um, grassroots organizing, community building. And I think the, the way to lead to someone's um, uh, sustainability within any kind of work is to find something within that space that serves you. If somebody is really interested in policy, which we have people who love to read through policies, compare different policies, that's that's really wonderful. Um, if somebody is trying to, um, if somebody's interested in graphic design or social media you know, within our group, we need to have people who are designing flyers, um, creating social media posts and beautiful ones that is really important and part of the movement. And so for me, I've been thinking about what what have I needed? And part of what was what was important for me and, and my involvement within this group was I wanted to be connected to the diabetes community. Um, but I didn't want to be connected in the way I didn't want to go to a dinner with diabetics and everybody's talking about their blood sugars. That's really important. Some people connect to community that way. I wanted to connect to community through a shared mission, a shared drive, a shared passion. And so I have been most fulfilled by the, the mobilization effort and the group effort that we have created to build a really strong, really supportive group in Connecticut. And I think it's been particularly important during COVID time, um, everyone in the world, everyone in the United States is dealing with their own form of trauma, I think, to a certain extent um, within uh, coronavirus. And, and I don't think you can ever compare different people's traumas necessarily. It's people are going through their own challenges. And I'm, I'm more keyed into the challenges and the hardships that are facing the diabetes community, um, a, a, a segment of the population that is at disproportionate risk to complications of COVID, um, and fatalities from COVID. And so it's been a period of real emotional distress for a lot of people with diabetes and people who are really um, uh, scared for their own health and scared for, you know, people within our group who, you know, 
are have don't have the option to work from home and people from in the group who you know have people within their families who don't have those um uh, who or who don't have the option as well and so for me what my greatest success from the group has actually just been building this this movement of what i think is all these really beautiful loving amazing people who are volunteering their time in addition to all the other things that they're dealing with in their life, in addition to managing a 24-7 chronic illness and finding extra time to, um, uh, to, to be together. And, you know, one of, one of my activities within the group was organizing a book group. You know, we read a book about the history of insulin production, and it was really empowering and it was really exciting. It gave really rich perspective for us to understand the hardships that we're facing today. When you look at people 100 years ago before there was insulin and people were literally starving to death to try and prolong their life and, and the, 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 the tragic circumstances that um, were involved with that. And so to me, you know, seeing this group through a really hard time is, is, is much more important to me than the, the, the bill that we passed. Um, yes, the bill we passed will do good, has been doing good, and I'm really happy about that. But I'm happier about um, people feeling, I want people to feel empowered. I want people to learn new things. I want people to connect. I want people to, to grow, to develop new relationships with their diabetes, to develop new relationships to other people. And so I have been, as one of the chapter leaders who's involved with the, planning the monthly meetings and trying to engage different people, bring in different speakers, you know, um, harness the expertise of people within the group that might not necessarily think of themselves as experts and, and try to build something is much more powerful, much more durable to me um, than uh, the legislation that we've passed because of the things that you've mentioned and because the legislation isn't perfect. Um, this, that we're not pushing for a new bill um, this current legislative session, but we have connected with, we've expanded, we're connecting with different healthcare advocacy groups in Connecticut um, and, and supporting their endeavors. And, and there's a lot of really interesting, really awesome groups out there that are doing really good work and that need support in a lot of ways because we passed this bill so quickly, which was really revolutionary, not trying to, you know, over pat ourselves on the back, but it was a really big deal. And part of that came through the partnerships that we had with our state legislators and meeting with um, politicians. There's a lot of different roles, I think, for advocacy groups. And and we are now, in some ways, I think, an inspiration to other groups. I know that. They've told us that. We get invited to talk at other groups. We get invited, you know, the one of our senators, um, Richard Blumenthal, last month invited our chapter to participate in a press conference um, related to um, another healthcare issue that is going on in the United States, um, a federal program called 340B. And so we had people come and talk at that. I think there's just... There's a lot of ways to, I think, understand what your group is and who you are and what you're doing. And I think, um, yeah, I don't think it, it, I don't think it would work as well for us if we were so wedded to just looking at the the state bills that we are pushing, because I think we're much more than that. And our impact is much more than that. And the personal impact to me um, is, mo is most important. Um. Yeah, I mean that totally makes sense to, to to make it personal, right? Like if you make it personal, if you make it about 
connection and personal growth and connection to this larger thing. Um, that is the way to make these things more sustainable. So really interesting and, and definitely encouraging to hear um, that, that, yeah, that that's kind of the angle that you've um, been able to see it and therefore, you know, seen so much success. And it does seem like, you know, kind of taking a step back, looking at broader healthcare policy, um, you know, we're in a very different um market or her world or perspective on healthcare and insurance and who should provide it and what should and what it should cover than 15 years ago, right? And that is mm-hmm. across the board, um, regardless of kind of political ideology or specific policies, um, people are just thinking about it really differently. And I've certainly learned a lot this year um, just from friends, acquaintances, or kind of researching more um, what the real impacts are, right? It's not just about having insurance. It's about having insurance that actually covers what what you need it to. Um, mm-hmm. I caught up with a high school friend very briefly, um, who and we were talking about, you know, what their healthcare insurance actually covers. And I had never thought about this before, but there's someone who also has a chronic condition that's very expensive. And because they don't have really um, great coverage from an employer, and so they've you know purchased or, or chosen their own coverage, they're actually in a situation where picking a high deductible plan works better for them. So they're fortunate in that they can cover that high deductible, I don't know, 8,000, 10,000, right? Like their high deductible plans are, are high amounts. Um, because a plan where they're paying a percent of these, the cost is actually so much higher to them, um, which, which was just so interesting. And so, um, I guess that the, the kind of thing I wanted to wrap up and just talk about for a couple minutes, um, since you know a little bit more about, about Connecticut and, you know, the truth is a lot of the federal policies we see have, have originated in states. They've been proven in states. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I mentioned this when Song and I were talking a couple weeks ago, but I had no idea that um, the, the structure for the Affordable Care Act came from what Romney was able to pass in Massachusetts. So the people of Massachusetts knew what it was like to have this um, – sort of public government provided platform to access healthcare and um, have more more coverage and more financial support from from the government. And so what like what is what else is happening in in Connecticut? Um, what types of policies are being talked about, either promising or not, um, to, to get us to that place where everybody really is covered for all their needs? Yeah, great, great question. And yes, um, different plans are different, and you really have to understand the lingo and and understand maybe experientially to have to figure out what um, that actually means. So there's there's three different healthcare bills that I'm excited about, and that our group is supporting in Connecticut um, for this legislative session. And I'd and I'd love to give a little a brief overview on on them. So the first one is um, a public option bill. And so basically the the state employees in Connecticut have for a long time um, uh, have have negotiated and created a very good health care bill 
um, that is fairly inexpensive, focuses on preventative health, and um, has, has, has good coverage, but it's really only accessible to um, state employees. So the public option bill um, that just had its hearing um, uh, about a week ago is trying to expand that and would allow for small businesses, nonprofits to tap into that bill, um, tap, sorry, tap into that plan. And so it would uh, increase the amount of people who could have access to um, better healthcare bills, ha- have better access to health insurance plans than, um, than they currently do have. And the, the bill will also provide subsidies to individuals and families that uh, are not able to afford plans on the on the Connecticut Exchange, um, but are not they don't have access to uh, Medicaid because they are making too much. They're sort of in that window, so it will help offset some of those costs and help more people get insurance that way. That's one of the bills that's exciting. Um, another one is called Immigrants for Husky, and this is a so right now. Um, if you are an undocumented immigrant in Connecticut, you are excluded from Medicaid, which is the um, insurance that, which is the coverage for people um, below a certain socioeconomic status. And so, this bill would um, uh, would allow anyone who's income eligible, irrespective of your um, your your legal status, um, to have uh, access to that bill, which is really important. Uh, access to that that plan, um, and then the last one is a singer payer bill, which is the run by Connecticut uh, Medicare for All, and so this is a single pay, single payer bill that would provide coverage to everyone. Um, and so, I, as as I learned from my own experience as an advocate, um, all of these bills are are completely alive until they are signed in law signed into law if they ever do get signed into law. So they're constantly changing based on the the legislators, based on the different people that they're talking to. Um, but those are three of the promising bills that are pretty groundbreaking and exciting and if passed would provide a lot more protection and coverage to patients in Connecticut. Um, that's it, it's so interesting to hear about yeah, all the specific states. Um, this year, I'm coming at it from such a different perspective. Having moved so much, I'm in this weird situation where, like, I'm not living in the state that I have healthcare coverage, and so there's challenges to you know getting prescriptions, seeing doctors. You know, thankfully in 2020, you can do a lot of things remote. Um, but so my mind has definitely been on the ease at which you navigate multiple systems, let alone how good one might work. Um, but it's certainly, you know, it's certainly encouraging just to hear that these bills are, are being talked about, right? Like I just said, 15 years ago, you know, states were not, maybe, maybe a couple of people were talking about a public option, um, but it wasn't necessarily gaining traction, right? And now mm-hmm. um, these things are, you know, they're really looking at the economics of them. They're really seeing here is what the actual cost to the state, to the taxpayers are, um, and you know, these are things that could be implemented, um, whether they, whether they pass. So it's really exciting to hear, um, yeah, to hear that that's, that's happening, that they're, that our legislatures are actually paying attention to who's not covered under the certain policies, who are those people that fall in between, right? I'm so glad you mentioned the, um, uh, 
there is this gap and it's so interesting because it really depends on the state. Um, but there is this gap between qualifying for Medicare and receiving really good coverage, um, or support, um, for your insurance on the exchange. Um, and in some states there, I, I didn't even know this until, you know, I had someone who, who I knew somebody that fell into this gap. Um, the states that didn't vote to kind of expand Medicare to help cover some of that, people literally don't have an option. It's you, you make, you don't make enough to even purchase, um, insurance on the exchange, but you also don't qualify for Medicare. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's wild that there are people, there are still states out there that, that that's the case. Um, and it's, yeah, it just sort of makes you question, you know, it's in the U S we talk a lot about this personal choice. Um, and I'm just sort of personally not sure that, um, there will be a successful Medicare for all in the way that it's been talked about, um, for, for a lot of reasons, but I'm also optimistic that there's other ways that can kind of really work for, the U.S. and our institutions and the people and kind of the economic process. Um, but so interesting that there's people who can't choose, who aren't in a situation to even be able to choose. Um, and so great to hear that in Connecticut, they're thinking about that, right? They're thinking about um, undocumented immigrants who don't qualify and how do you, you know, provide support for them. Um, so yeah, that's it, that's really cool to hear. I'll definitely be paying a little bit more attention to to what's happening in Connecticut state policy now. Yeah, I think, uh, and I think that the, a, a good way maybe to close on is it's creating healthcare bills. Creating bills is really hard. You know, I think it's we, we we're at this point right now in our in our society where I think there's a lot of people who are you know shaking their fists in the air saying, make better bills. We need better bills. And, and yes, we need better bills, but it's really hard. You know, it's really hard to create sound policies that get bipartisan support that are, are going to have the effects that you want to have. And so I am supporting groups that are trying to do that. We are a group that's trying to do that. Um, but you know, it's also good to have some compassion, some level of empathy in that it's, it's not, it's not easy. And, um, and, and these are challenges that we are going to be working with, you know, forever. Yeah, it's, it's the long game for sure. So definitely, you know, that's, I'm, I'm certainly as your friend excited that you have found, um, you know, connection to this group, but also that it is, you know, a way of participating in meaningful change. Um, And I think, you know, figuring out what that thing is for each of us that really motivates us. Um, And and I like the addition of community. I think I'm going to be talking about that a lot now when I talk about this topic of, you know, be an activist, find the thing that you're really passionate about, work to change the status quo. Um, But, you know, pick the thing that you're really passionate about. And so I've definitely enjoyed um, hearing some of the details from you and your clear like excitement around being able to support this long-term and, and find community, find community through it. So yeah, thanks for, for joining us and, and talking about Connecticut again, a state I lived in and just did not even know um, how good or not the, the policies there were. Thank you for listening to Effing Ethical. As usual, we would love to hear from you. Uh, What topics are you interested in? What are your thoughts about our thoughts? Really anything. 
Um, you can email us at hello at songandsarah.com or find us on Instagram at F-I-N-G underscore ethical.